Chapter 11 Cleve, the executioner, had finished his supper and had just lit his favorite pipe when the royal guards came knocking at his door bearing a new order from the king. What? Another? Does the king know what time it is? I punched out over two hours ago. Doesn't matter, said the officer in charge. He wants it done immediately. Cleve thought this most peculiar. Where's the warrant? No warrant. And the order of execution, where's that? No order of execution. Cleve frowned at the officer and set down his pipe. Receiving just one of the required documents was not completely unusual. A shortage of staff or errors processing the paperwork had been the cause from time to time. It was an irregularity and discouraged by the guild, but not an actual breach of regulations. But to be handed no documentation at all was not only a breach of the regulations, but a breach of law as well. Hold on there, you have no warrant and no order of execution? Who's to say the accused should be beheaded? The king, of course, said the officer churlishly. Now wait a minute, answered Cleve. The king should know there's procedure involved. I can't go cutting someone's head off off with no backup documentation. If it ever were disputed, you know, down the road, I could be held responsible. It could mean my head on the chopping block. And what about me? protested the guard. Do you think I like operating outside legalities? I'm an officer in the king's service, not just some unfeeling brute with no respect for law and order. If you only knew what I wrestle with these days, the havoc I reap in the king's name, why it strains my sense of decency. It undermines everything they taught me in public school. Now are you coming? What about my gratuity? Seriously? So no tip either? No tip, no frills, and no gabbing about this at the pub afterwards. I don't drink. I do. Let's go. Disgruntled, Cleve doffed his nightcap, then sighed and motioned to the officer he would follow shortly. Another job, he scowled, pulling on his doublet. When's a fellow to relax a bit and enjoy the pleasures of his family? He was no shirker by the most ambitious man's standards, and a staunchly loyal subject. But something had to be done about the increasing length of his workday. Enough was enough. Executions had multiplied tenfold in just three months. Perhaps if he started charging a higher rate after a certain number of heads, the king might not call upon him quite so readily. He paused to consider this, and a new thought struck him. Then again, he had never been so well off as now, and with the tips he collected for prime cuts, he was earning a very handsome wage. And then there were Malady and the boys to consider. She was a loving wife and mother, yet she was a sickly lass by nature, frail and peaked. What they all needed was to be gone from this foul-smelling, garbage-rotting city, and take up residence in the country where the air was always fresh and the sun shined unencumbered. If he continued to be as busy as he had been these past few months, he could earn enough money to buy a little cottage somewhere. A quiet place that had its own well, clean rushes on the floor, a stick or two of furniture, and a fireplace. Aye, a fireplace made of stone, and a privy just a few short paces from the back door. His family deserved the finer things in life, and these he intended to provide them. Oh, well, thought the executioner, pulling on his leggings and lacing them up. Another job, another swish of the blade. That reminds me. 
I got a sharpen my axe. Felt like it was sticking a bit that last time. Here you go, love, said Malady, crossing the room with his hood. She might have been a pretty woman were not her face so drawn and sallow. There were dark circles under her eyes, and she wheezed or gurgled with each breath. Childbearing had not been easy for her. Like her mother, she was built narrow in the hips. Her first delivery had lasted twenty hours. Her second nearly killed her. But she cared deeply for her husband, and would have consented to have more children had not the fates stepped in on her behalf. For on a rainy day some time back, Cleve's axe had slipped from his hands and had come close to rendering him a eunuch. When the wound had healed and they could once again make love, they discovered he was no longer capable of issuing his seed. Therefore, pregnancy was no longer a concern. Don't want no man of mine going out in public half-dressed. She handed him his hood and frowned. What's wrong, Puddin? asked Cleve, thinking she was ill. Shive your head to die, love. Oh, yeah, replied the executioner, running his hand across his scalp. It's just me five o'clock shadow. Feeling right, Puddin? Of course. Just the same old thing. The same old thing, as she described it, was a pain that ran from her right shoulder to her right leg. At times it kept her in such agony, she could do naught but walk in a tight circle like a dog chasing its tail. Now come over here, you brute, and I'll put some oil on that arm of yours. He followed her to the hearth where she dipped her fingers into a pan of cooled chicken fat, then watched her as she rubbed it into his skin. With the increased workload, he had recently developed a minor case of axe elbow. That's nice, said Cleve in a suggestive tone, ticking his eyebrows up and down. Hmm, where have the kids gone off to so light? She responded with a smirk and a light slap upon his breast. To be right, the prisoners what's due for beheading tomorrow. Oh, the little dears, chuckled the man. Bet them's be following in their dad's footsteps before too long. <laughs> Next year, I'll let them carry the baskets and wash off the bloody straw. He took her hand and guided her to the door. Ta, love, said Cleve, grabbing his axe. Will you be up when I get back? I don't think so, replied the woman, offering her cheek for him to peck. I'm pretty tuckered. But when she saw the grin on her husband's face, she added, Though I'm not saying you couldn't try to wake me up. She stood at the threshold and watched him until he had reached the end of their street and had rounded the corner of the main thoroughfare. He's a good man, thought Malady, stepping back into their hovel. A bit of a bruiser around the house sometimes, but considerate of me needs, and affectionate with the children. All in all, she had a good life. Food in her stomach, thatch over her head, and two fine young sons to do her proud when she was gone, for she knew her time was short. The brightest flame did not alter the dimness of her sight. Thank the gods she had set to memory everything in the place, or she'd be forever running into the furniture. And the aches in her joints, and her feet. Oh, her feet were killing her. Kawa sat in a shadowy corner, his legs folded against his chest. He was confused, hurt but mostly he was afraid. He had always been loyal to the royal family. He had always done his best to please them, from drawing back the covers on their beds each night to leaving them little sprigs of mint on their pillows. It had never been just a job to him, in at seven, gone by eleven. These people had been his life. He scanned his cell yet another time. 
hoping to find something different about it, something that would expose it as a delusion. But nothing, not the slimy walls, not the smelly straw, not the creepy crawly things had changed. This was no dream. Reality itself had become a nightmare. What could he have done to deserve so horrible a fate? Why had the gods suddenly abandoned him and brought him to such ruin? He thought of a reason almost immediately. I'll wager it was because I cheated last tithing day and didn't declare enough of my income. He considered this a bit while chewing on a hangnail. Aye, that must be the reason. Well, I guess it's true what they say. You can fool some of the gods some of the time. And then his thoughts drifted to the two princes he had raised. He remembered how he had held them during thunderstorms, and how he had kept them entertained, and how one of them had often tied him to a tree and plied him with sharp sticks. Poor Darren, he reflected, so evil. This did not ring true. No, not evil, he decided, just hopelessly lost. Even there, in the bowels of the castle, surrounded by decay and the odor of sweaty bodies, he remained loyal. The retainer rose to his feet, then lumbered to the small, barred window opposite the cell door. Between the bars he could see a portion of the sky. The heavens, he reflected, home of the gods, and addressing them he called, All this over a few undeclared copper pieces? Don't you think the penalty is rather stiff? In response to his query there came a high-pitched, angelic voice, not from the heavens as he had hoped, but from the corridor just outside the cell. Nope, it's what it deserves. Squeals of laughter, cruel and shrill, poured through a tiny portal in the door. Cower, burdened by his chains, struggled across the room. Who's out there? I demand to know. Is this your idea of a jest? Eavesdropping on a man as he makes his peace with the gods? Now, now, mustn't waste our last minutes getting angry, responded a slightly deeper voice that cracked once uncontrollably. Me dad's gonna spruce you up for your trip, taunted the angelic voice. Yes, sirree, he's gonna shave you real close, he is. Right down to your shoulders. Cow appeared into the gloom. Show me yourselves. Let me see your faces if you dare. I'll show you me bum is all, rejoined the deeper voice, accompanying the remark with a vulgar sound. So there you are, kids, came still a third voice, one that belonged to an older man and was very vaguely familiar to the retainer. Who've we got here? A new one, Dad, said the older one of the two. We was making him right at home, we was. Getting him oriented, so to speak. <laughs> That's my good lads. <laughs> well, let's have at it then. Cower heard the jingle of keys, heard the lock click and the door groan as it swung inward. He gasped and stumbled backwards, struck to the very core of his being by a terror he had never known. This can't be happening to me, he told himself. Any second now I'll wake up from this nightmare. But again he knew he was not dreaming. The door fully open, Cleave entered the cell flanked by his two sons. To cower in his present state of mind, this was an utterly absurd and revolting sight. Me dad's gonna slice you into pieces now, said the little one, his large brown eyes filled with mirth. The older boy, who was pimple-faced and awkward in his movements, leaned around his father and cuffed his brother playfully on the head, croaking. Here now, Denome, mustn't badger a man what's about to be made so much shorter than he is. <laughs> 
He chuckled at his own jest, revealing crooked, yellowish-brown teeth. That's enough, Naum, chided Cleve gently as he gazed at the prisoner. There was something about the man that bothered him, and when he stepped closer for a better look, he understood why. Is that you, Master Cower? The retainer shook so badly he could not answer. Aye, I think it is, said Cleve, surprised. Much to his children's amazement, the executioner removed his hood, approached the prisoner, and extended his hand. You remember me, don't you? Cleave? Cower cringed and shied away. Remember you? That terrible stormy night two years ago when me wife was ailing and the court physician refused to see her? It was you who brought some potions, your very own as I recall. It was a simple statement, but one impactful enough to grant Kawa a brief reprieve from his torment. Aye, my aunt had sent them from the swamps by her home. They were supposed to have wondrous restorative powers. Tis true, said Cleve exuberantly, shaking Kawa's hand. I can attest to it. Why, if it weren't for you, me wife would be mouldering today. Then she's better? Well, you know how long these things can hang on sometimes, but she's getting there. Please give her my best regards. I will, and thank you. It was then Cleve knitted his brow and said in a concerned tone, Tell me, Master Cower, what brings you to this sorry state? Reminded of his situation, Cower slumped, drained of his strength, and began to weep. A monstrous thing has happened. Pity me, pity you, pity the world. The executioner gathered up Kawa's chains and guided him to the wall where they sat. There now, said the man, trying to comfort him. Cleve motioned for the boys to leave. After a surly protest or two, they obeyed their father. The executioner patted the retainer's hand. Why don't you tell Cleve all about it? Kawa looked at him through bloodshot eyes. I go to my death because I possess a knowledge that is disastrous to the kingdom. A secret so horrible if the world knew of it, order would crumble, panic would ensue, and the days of chaos would be upon us. Really, replied the executioner, trying to be a polite listener. Chaos, you say? Utter ruination, and worse. Hmm, what could be worse than utter ruination? Cower's words had spilled out like a flood, unintentionally but incautiously as well. And now, with this having dawned on him, he gave Cleve a guarded look. Should I trust him? thought the retainer. What will he do with the information? Or should such a secret ever be revealed? For what was more disastrous? pondered the retainer. To have Darren ruling in Brian's stead, with no one the wiser, or to expose the impostor without heed to the calamity that would follow. And then there was the simple question of whether the executioner would believe him. Even now, though stuck in a dungeon with manacles about his wrists, he hardly believed it himself. Yet, he thought, that does not make it any less the truth. Darren has committed a heinous crime. He has usurped his brother's throne. He must be stopped. The retainer sat upon his knees, energized now. What I'm about to tell you will seem far-fetched, preposterous even, but it is the truth even so. You must believe me. I will, Master Cower, said Cleve earnestly. I have always thought you a good and honest person. I thank you for that, replied the retainer quickly, done with pleasantries. But know you this, once you hear what I have to say, your life will be forever changed. Forever changed, repeated. Well, maybe not forever, but at least until the situation has been rectified. Shall I continue? Yes, replied Cleve. Cower took a deep breath, leaned closer, 
and in a voice just above a whisper said, The king is not who he claims to be. And who is that? asked Cleve, intrigued. The king. Aye, but who does he claim to be? The king does not claim to be anyone else but the king. But you said, Never mind what I said. The king is not the king. Well, if the king's not the king, then who is he? The prince. The king's the prince? Aye. You've lost me. Look, it's really very simple. The king is not the king, but the prince instead, pretending to be the king. All right, then, where's the king? The prince wants everyone to believe he's the prince. I thought you said the prince wants everyone to believe he's the king. He does. I still don't know where the king is. In prison. Why is he in prison? Because everyone thinks he's the prince. Cleve rubbed his brow, hoping to alleviate the sudden pain that had developed there. I'm sorry, Master Cower, but I'm still not with you. Let me start over. Must you? I'll put it another way. The person you think is Brian is really Darren. The person you think is Darren is really Brian. Darren has been crowned king and Brian is a prisoner because everyone thinks he's Darren. Ah, now I understand, said Cleve, and he fell silent, his brow knitting. Cower watched him carefully, holding his breath. Was he truly convinced? Had he won his first ally? At length Cleve sighed and rose to his feet, whereupon he produced a small key from his purse and unlocked the manacles around Kawa's wrists. You believe me, said the retainer, and tears sprang to his eyes. I believe you, said the executioner, donning his black hood. Tis so fantastical that it must be true. Dear friend, blurted Kawa, shaking with relief, I was afraid you'd think me mad. Oh no, I would never think that. Not of you, Master Cower. Well, time to go. Yes, yes, we must away. And quickly, where to then? The courtyard. Good. But once they were in the hallway, the retainer paused. The courtyard? Aye. What's in the courtyard? The block, of course. What? cried Cower, falling against the wall. After all I've told you, you're going to execute me anyway? What has that to do with us? asked Cleve simply. I think you're being a little short-sighted, my friend. You've got to look farther than the chopping block. Prince Darren has usurped his brother's throne and is posing as Brian. Yes, you said that. And it means nothing to you? I'm sorry, but I try to steer clear of politics. From the blank look on Cower's face, the executioner felt compelled to continue. When you're a member of my class, the poor working class, that is, you tend not to get involved in such things. It doesn't matter who sits on the throne as long as it doesn't interfere with your efforts to put food on the table and clean straw on the floor. Don't you understand? There's a madman ruling the country, and imposter, and it's our duty to stop him. Look, said Cleve, growing annoyed, I know my duty. I don't need you to tell me about my duty, and right now my duty is to execute you. Now I'd appreciate it if we could end the discussion. I've got a powerful headache, and I'm having a hard time going through with this as it is. You want a hood? A hood? A blindfold, then. I'll let you know beforehand when we come to to any steps. Knowing he was just moments from his death, the last of Kawa's hopes came crashing down. He felt miserable and puny and forsaken by the gods. To the block, muttered the retainer as he followed the executioner. Of all places for things to end, I should have bought that life insurance policy last year when I had the chance. I don't suppose we could stop along the way. Sorry, friend, said Cleve sympathetically. Wish I could allow it, but it's against the rules. And besides, now that you've been condemned, the insurance company would consider it a pre-existing condition. Oh.